Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. We began the year by finding Jesus in Genesis. Uh, We now continue that work by finding Jesus in Exodus. Um, Through this series, what we're learning to do is essentially read the Bible uh, with Christ as the interpretive center. Uh, So we're going into the Old Testament having our knowledge of Jesus, having the New Testament in mind, having the, the truths about who Jesus is. And then we're essentially asking the Spirit of God then to help us read and understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Uh, That's what we're doing. And I think it's been really helpful for us based on some of the feedback that I've received. Uh, But I want to mention as we begin our kind of exploration into Exodus, uh, that reading the Bible in this way is not a new idea. Uh, It isn't an innovation of the postmodern age. Uh, It isn't a trope of so-called progressive Christianity. Uh, This is the way that Christians have read and understood Scripture for centuries. And in fact, I would say any abandonment of reading the Scriptures in the way that we have been doing in this series is in fact the innovation. Uh, Which is why, as we've kind of, we've we've really stayed rooted in the Scriptures. We haven't made anything up on our own, but we've, we've kind of looked to the New Testament to see how the earliest apostles really read and saw Jesus in these passages of Scriptures. And we're going to find the same thing today and as we explore through Exodus, that Uh, that these aren't just kind of new ideas. These are, in fact, ideas that are presented to us in the scriptures themselves. So what we're doing is really trying to be, uh, take the Bible very seriously uh, and lean into what the scriptures have to say about how the scripture actually interprets itself, if that makes sense. So we've been spending um, a few, so to read the Bible as a Christian is to read all of the scriptures in light of Christ. And we've been doing that for a few weeks in Genesis. Uh, now we turn our attention to the book of Exodus. Uh, the central figure in the book of Exodus is, without a doubt, Moses, right? Uh, it'd be hard to go to any Sunday school for any amount of time without hearing about Moses, one of the most famous uh, biblical figures. But the Moses that we know, the man who goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the leader of the Hebrew people, uh, the man who talked to God on the mountain and then brought down the Ten Commandments, this Moses began his second half of life in the wilderness with an encounter with a burning bush, Uh, which is to say that uh, up until midlife, Moses was a little, was was an unknown figure or little known figure with nothing but a questionable past. I want to say that again. Up until midlife, Moses was a little known figure with a questionable past. That's it. Um, we last left the biblical narrative uh, with Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, who had been renamed Israel. Now, Joseph was serving in Egypt uh, as the number two under Pharaoh. And when years of famine came, Joseph's family moved to Egypt. You remember when we talked about this in our Genesis series? And this, the family of, of uh, Jacob, the family of Joseph, the family of Israel, uh, actually did quite well in Egypt for many years. Um, 
That is, until a Pharaoh came to power that did not know or remember Joseph. This is not our scripture for this morning, but I want to read it uh, just as a kind of framework for uh, getting to our passage. Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, says, In time, Joseph and all of his brothers had died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing of Joseph or what he had done. And he said to the people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. So we must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. They will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. That's Exodus chapter 1, 6 through 11. So essentially what happened is this new Pharaoh comes to power looking at the growing number of Hebrew people uh, and he decided then to turn them into a labor force for the expansion project of Egypt. And so the Israelites became slave labor for the empire. Uh, Now to protect from an uprising of this enslaved people, Pharaoh also imposed uh, infanticide which is uh, he ordered that Hebrew baby boys be killed by throwing them in the river. Um, This is meant to repulse us. We are supposed to be repulsed by this. Uh, Pharaoh in Exodus is a dark and monstrous figure who is the embodiment of all kinds of evil. And in in, in many ways, you kind of have, in the book of Exodus, uh, you kind of have Pharaoh who is the stand-in or the representation for the ways and the mindset of empire. And you have Moses, who stands for and is the representative for the ways of Yahweh, or that is the one true God. And that's why you have kind of these two ways of being, uh, kind of going toe-to-toe with one another in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, quite literally, is a representative of the way of empire. Now, let me say this as well. When I say the way of empire, I simply want to explain it in this way. This won't land with everybody, but it will land with some. Uh, For those of you that are Hunger Games fans or you're familiar with the story, when I say empire, what I mean is capital. Okay, you with me? Some of you are with me, right? So when I say the ways of empire, I mean the ways of the capital as it's presented in the Hunger Games. Okay, so some of you are wondering what that is. That's okay. You can look it up. It's a book of, it's a series of book, books. Wow, I don't know what happened there. A series of books and also were made into films. Um, so this is what happens. Uh, then, he, then the Pharaoh says, all the baby boys to protect from population control, all the Hebrew baby boys have to be thrown into the Nile River. But there was a woman who dared to defy the Pharaoh. And she did put her baby boy in the river, but she placed him in a basket made of reeds. And this was a small act of resistance against the will of Pharaoh. And unbelievably, Pharaoh's own daughter came to the river to bathe, saw the baby, and took him in. And that baby is the person that we come to know as Moses. 
Now, having been taken in by the Pharaoh's daughter, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court as a young boy, as a teenager, onto being a young man. He had proximity to power, and he was a person of privilege. His life was on the trajectory of success in the greatest superpower the world knew at the time. Life was good, right? He had been miraculously rescued from a life of imprisonment and placed into a life of privilege. But one day, as a grown man, he decided to see past his privilege for just a moment, and he dared to look at the world through another person's eyes. And when he did, he saw that his ancestral people were being treated unjustly, that they were taken advantage of, often abused, and kept poor without any hope of social advancement. Sometimes what we need to do is be willing to see the world through another person's eyes. Amen? This made Moses angry when he actually saw what was happening to his own ancestral people. He became angry. So angry, in fact, that when he saw an Egyptian mistreating a fellow Hebrew, he reacted in rage and killed the Egyptian. So this hero of the faith, <laughs> this, may not, this is not what they teach in Sunday school, probably a good thing, but this hero of the faith, before he did all the stuff that we know him to be famous for, was in a position of privilege, chose to see the world through another person's eyes, and then killed an Egyptian. Before we judge too quickly, though, Moses, again, was a child of the empire, and raised in the courts of Pharaoh, schooled in the ways of empire, and thus assumed that he could employ the same tactics as Pharaoh to save his people. And so he killed an Egyptian. I want to say that again. Moses, a child of the empire, and raised in the courts of Pharaoh, who now who schooled in the ways of empire, assumed that he could employ the same tactics as Pharaoh to save his people. And his response was then, he killed an Egyptian. So having been formed and shaped by the thinking of empire, he assumed that he could and assumed that he should employ violence as a means of rescue. But of course this does no good because the, what happens is the Hebrew people did not need to be saved by Pharaoh. They needed to be saved from Pharaoh. Okay? Did you catch it? Moses tries to hide his crime of murder, but he was found out. So he moved out to the wilderness of Midian where he meets a nice woman. They marry. He ends up being the shepherd for his father-in-law. He works for his father-in-law. He went from the courts of Pharaoh to an employee of his father-in-law. <laughs> right? <laughs> this is how this is the churn that his life had made. He's midlife. His life began with promise, privilege, and proximity to power, but now he feels as though his life is ending. And maybe he might even feel midlife this is Moses' midlife crisis. He might have even felt that his life was nothing but wasted potential. There was once the promise based on the provision of God to save his life. There once was promise based on the provision of God to save his life, but now there was only poverty in the wilderness. As I said, he was a little-known figure with a questionable past. 
But something happens to Moses in the wilderness. His life had been spared miraculously as a child, but there was still some things that needed to be stripped away. Some things in his heart that needed to be redirected, some things that needed to die in order that some things, some other things might also live. And although it seemed as though he would live out the rest of his days as a shepherd in Midian, his life, it turns out, was only just beginning. And that brings us to our passage this morning. And some of you are like, that is the longest intro you've ever heard. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, I'm going to read the first eight verses, then I'm going to skip down to 13, verse 13 and 14. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement, for though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses thought to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. Now when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. But then the Lord said to him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of the harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land that is flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Now go down to verse 13. But Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and I tell them the God of their ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? What then should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When Moses encounters a bush that is burning in the wilderness, he was little more than the failed prince of Egypt. But the time in the desert had a way of stripping away some of the things that needed to be stripped away. How many of you, in a moment of, of stress or feeling overwhelmed, needed to go take a walk? or go into the wilderness, or get out for a few days, and away from the cement, right? Away, away from the pavement. And you needed to just go into the wilderness. There's something that happens in the wilderness. There's something about the presence of God, and there's something about the simplicity of life when you are in the wilderness that kind of just strips away at the things that need to strip away. And this is exactly what Moses experienced. And so there he is. He's in the wilderness. He's been there a little while, shepherding for his father-in-law. He's got a questionable past. He's got a, a, a whole bunch of, of broken uh, potential. He's got memories of the greatness of his life. And now he lives simply working for his father-in-law and maybe thinking about all the things that could have been. 
But then one day, he notices a bush that is on fire. But this bush is not being consumed. Which is to say, the bush is burning, but it still shows signs of life and vitality. This was a wondrous curiosity, so he went to the bush to check it out. And that is when an angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, Moses, Moses. And in this conversation with the angel in the flame, and again, the flame is not from combustion. The flame is the fire of God. In this conversation, Moses learned that God had seen the suffering of the Hebrew people in Egypt and God wants to partner Moses to partner with God to set the people free. There's a little line in the scriptures that I think is important. It said that God sees, that God has heard, and that God intends to move or to act, which is to say that God cares. God sees, God hears, God cares. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what this season of life holds for you, but I believe that this may be a word for somebody. God sees. God hears. And we can say in Christ, God knows and God cares about human suffering. God sees, God hears, God knows and God cares about human suffering. And this is what Moses learns. Then the same way where he one day began to see the world through another person's eyes and began to see all that was happening to his own ancestral people, he responded with the ways of Pharaoh, right? but then is called by God to partner with God to rescue this people. And he learns that God sees, God hears, God knows, and God cares. Moses, wanting a little bit of credibility, after all, he is now a known criminal who has fled to Midian. So if he's going to go back as the failed prince of Egypt and begin to say, hey, and, and confront Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go, he needs a little bit of credibility behind him, right? He needs, to say, he needs somebody to say, this is the person who sent me. So, of course, the question is, well, who, who is it that I am sending? Like, who is sending me? Who should I say that you are? <laughs> and God's reply is simply, I am. Or I am who I am. The Greek here is ego or ego emi, which simply means I exist or I be. And then the story of Moses picks up speed from there. Moses confronts Pharaoh, let my people go, which is really a call for Pharaoh to recognize the harm that he was doing. But Pharaoh refuses to see this harm for fear of the economic impact it would have to ha no longer have the slave labor driving the expansion of Egypt. So he chooses not to see the harm that he's doing. And now I've gotten too far ahead of myself because this is a four-week series. <laughs> so... Moses encounters a burning bush that speaks to him and gave the identification of I am. Where do we find Jesus? Fast forward to the Gospel of John. 
Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself with a phrase that begins with the Greek words, ego, eimi, or I am. Seven times Jesus does this, identifies himself beginning with a phrase that begins, I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for the sheepfold. I am the light of the world, the resurrection and life, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And these seven statements of Jesus are an echo of the burning bush moment. Which is to say, Jesus, where do we find Jesus in Exodus, in the burning bush? Jesus is the angel of the Lord in the bush that was aflame, but is not being consumed. What does this mean then? Are you ready? <laughs> this is so good. The burning bush is an anticipation of the incarnation of Christ. Well, how and why? Because Christ takes up residence in the bush and floods it with divine presence. And this anticipates the incarnation of Christ because Christ took up residence in humanity. And then through his death on the cross, entered into the depths of hell and then was exalted to the highest heaven in his ascension, thereby filling all of creation with divine presence. Are you with me? And so the burning bush, you have the divine presence of Jesus that takes up residence in the bush and fills it with divine presence. And then you have Jesus, the person of Jesus, echoing this burning bush moment saying, I am, I am, I am, seven times. And then essentially filling humanity with the presence of God. But then in his death where he descends into Hades, filling Hades with his presence, ascending up to the heavens, filling the heavens with his presence. So now all things are soaked in the presence of God. Amen. It's a beautiful thing. Today at the base of Mount Sinai, Today, modern day, right now, at the base of Mount Sinai in Egypt, stands St. Catherine's Monastery. Now, some historians date the construction of this monastery all the way back to 330 AD, which is to say it's old. And it has not once succumbed to the elements or burned or anything. It has stood, and of course, there's been work and some restoration, but it has never been knocked down. And it has stood for th since 330 AD. Now, while the exact date of construction is up for debate, what is not debatable is that this is the oldest place of continual Christian worship in the world. Five times a day, every day, for over 1,700 years, Christians have gathered at St. Catherine's Monastery to worship and to pray. And the monastery is built on the site of the burning bush. As you walk the grounds of the monastery, you come across a bush with a plaque that says, this is the burning bush. Whoa. Amazing. 
Some of you, I, in, I think by your chuckles, may be a little bit like me. How in the world do they know that that's the burning bush? How could they? How do they know it's that bush and not the bush right beside it? Because there is, in fact, a bush right beside it. How do they know it's not that one? How did this bush get to deserve a plaque? How do bushes last that long, live that long, right? I guess if you survived a fire, you could survive anything, right? I mean, you kind of have all sorts of questions that come to your mind, and these are modern, historical criticism questions, and they come in, and they flood in, and let me tell you, church, they all miss the point. They all miss the point. Is the bush marked as the burning bush at St. Catherine's Monastery, the actual burning bush? Of course it is. What makes the burning bush is not the bush, but the awakening of Moses to the presence of God. <laughs> the burning bush is, at St. Catherine's Monastery, is as much the burning bush as the weeping willow is on the path of a lunchtime walk that I take almost every day. That weeping willow is the burning bush. I'd be willing to bet that you have a burning bush in your backyard. Do you see where I'm going with this? The burning bush anticipates the incarnation of God. And in the incarnation, Jesus takes up residence in humanity, fills it with his presence, goes into Hades, goes up to the heavens so that all of creation is filled with divine presence. How do you know it's the burning bush? Because every bush is on fire <laughs> with the presence of God. If we'll have eyes to see it. There is an inherent divine beauty to the things that surround us. And I got to tell you, in moments of stress or feeling overwhelmed or feeling uncertain, it can be hard to recognize, it can be hard to see. It can be hard to kind of tune in and plug in to the divine presence that is all around us. But what makes the burning bush is not the bush, it's that Moses was awakened to the presence of God. And I think this very same possibility is open to you and I. To see the presence of God in all things. Um, this is what the Apostle Paul tries to get across in his letter to the Ephesians. He says something like this multiple times in Ephesians. I'll read you just one verse. But he says this, the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. That's not my words. That's the Apostle Paul. Uh, the one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. The main thing that I want to get across this morning is that if we will, from time to time, 
allow ourselves to be stripped away of the things that need to be stripped away, we might just be awakened to the presence of God that is all around us. Amen? And I would be willing to bet that if we just kind of like go about our lives and are never really intentional about spiritual formation or, or times of quiet and prayer or times of going to the wilderness or whatever the wilderness represents for you, a time where you can kind of strip away the things that need to be stripped away so that you can begin to see the presence of God all around us. It won't happen automatically. It will happen with intention. There's um, a few years ago, a band called All Sons and Daughters uh, wrote a song called Christ Be All Around Me. Hopefully that's familiar. We sang it this morning. <laughs> Hopefully some of you are like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was going to read the lyrics of that song, but as it turns out, we've already read the lyrics of that song as we sang it. That song is a derivative of a more original poem by St. Patrick. St. Patrick wrote these words. And I think he wrote these words inspired by this very truth. He who descended has ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. In response to that, the ancient church father, St. Patrick, wrote this poem. Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. What I love about this is that St. Patrick captures the idea that even in the most difficult, challenging moments, the world is flooded with divine presence. And so the poem begins, Christ to my left and right, around, in front of me, behind me, in me, right? Through the Spirit of God, Christ in me. And then, so it's sort of this recognition that all around me is sacred. And then in a very real way, my life is made sacred as Christ lives inside of me through the Spirit of God. But then it, then it kind of goes to Christ for anyone who hears me, Christ, for anyone who speaks of me. In other words, he's beginning to say that the presence of Christ is in others. The image of God is, is to be seen in other people. That it isn't just before and behind and around me or in me, but it's also in others. And then by the time you get to the end, you recognize there's nowhere that isn't flooded with the presence of Christ. Thanks be to God. My hope and my prayer now is that we will recognize and feel and experience the presence of God as we gather around the Lord's table. My hope, my prayer is that, in fact, that you will experience grace, 
you will experience healing, you will experience love at the table today. Because we come to receive, we don't come to take. Our language is messed up when we say we're going to take communion. <laughs> we don't come to take communion, we come to receive the presence and the goodness of God at the table. And so I recognize, man, is this a challenging time in life and in our world and in our culture? This is a weird, hard time for a lot of people. And so my prayer is that through the bread and the wine, God would meet us in this place and provide healing, provide direction, provide um, just assurance of presence, provide all of those things. And so let me lead us to the Lord's table and then I'll offer some instructions of how we'll do it. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to see you in this common bread and in our common lives, in our hunger and in our fullness, in our despair and in our hope, in our worship and in our work. And feed us also with bread that is unseen. Open our hearts, Lord, and fill our cups to overflowing. Prepare your table of blessing even in the presence of our enemies. Drench us with compassion for the poor. Make us thirsty for justice and liberation of the oppressed. And pour out for us the cup of heaven. I invite you to come to the table of the Lord, you who are longing for God's face. You who are weary from the world. You who have fed on the bread of sorrow or have quenched your thirst with tears. Come for the table is ready. For these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.